When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, so we're going to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming for something brand new here. We're doing the first ever TFL Classics podcast. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Uh, we get to talk about some classic cars, which is a little bit of a departure from the normal TFL podcasts, but I think it'll be interesting for a lot of you guys. we got some interesting vehicles we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I don't know if they're classic or clapped out. We'll let you leave, uh, <laughs> leave a comment below if you, uh, if you have your opinions, but... Uh, today, it's going to be myself, Tommy Micah, over at the TFL Classics YouTube channel, and Brendan, and we're going over... What are we going over today? So we are going to go over 10 future collectibles. So these are cars that you can still get at a relatively low price, and you can hold on to it, and it's going to go up in value. Yeah, so these are cars that we think are kind of fully depreciated, cars that are a little bit off the beaten path, um, something that are not typically uh, thought about as classics, but cars that are now, you know, 15, 20, 25 years old and are pretty darn cool. So we're going to start off with our number 10 choice, which is a little bit bold, but it is the SN95 Mustang. So these were introduced for the 1994 model year. They sold them through the late 1990s, and they are typically regarded as being one of the less attractive Mustangs. Yeah, I would say it's not the least attractive Mustang. That probably goes to the Mustang too. Those things were hideous. But the SN95s, I think, are actually a pretty timeless design. It, I think it's going to age well. I think they are aging fairly well. Um, a lot of people prefer the New Edge, and I, I tend to as well, but the New Edge Mustangs are way more expensive than you can get these four. So here's the story, right? Throughout the late 70s and through the 1980s, Ford built a model called the Fox Body, which was a really squared off Mustang. And those are fantastic, but they're very collectible now, and they're super, super valuable. And a clean one's going to run you 15, 20 grand now for a really nice one. And then in 1993, they redesigned it for the 94 model year and called it the SN95. Um, SN uh, stood for Specialty Vehicle North America, 95 in the sequence. And it was a radical departure. This thing looked absolutely crazy when it first came out and hit the market. Yeah, and in fact, both you and I have had interactions with these. I personally own, well, I guess my wife personally owns a 1994, which is the first year of the SN95 V6 automatic convertible. I know, like, the least enthusiast of all the SN95 Mustangs, uh, but it was handed down to us by her grandparents, so we didn't make the purchase. We just happened to be the lucky recipients to get it for free, and you cannot argue with a free car. And to be honest, it's not a bad little car. It's a nice car to cruise around, and it's surprisingly comfortable for a Mustang. 
and it's been quite reliable. It's got over 200,000 miles on it. Yeah. Now, they had a choice of engines depending on the model year. A lot of um, a lot of them do have the V6, which is a fine engine. If you just want a comfy cruiser, it's a really good choice, but probably the one you want to look out for is the V8. Now, they launched the 5-liter V8 out of the out of the uh, Fox body Mustang. And those ones are actually the most collectible, believe it or not, because those five liters are cheap and easy to get a lot of power out of for uh, folks that want to tune them up. And then shortly thereafter, they, they switched to the 4.6 liter modular V8. And um, the power remained the same, right? It didn't go down, it was still 215 horsepower, but those ones are not quite as tunable as the early models. Um, and torque was, it was higher in the Mustangs. It was like 280-ish but not a huge amount of power by modern day standards. Yeah, and they actually, those 5.0s were only available in the SN95s for the first two years, so 94 and 95, believe it or not, and that's why they're so rare and so hard to find. Um, the rest of them after that were using that 4.6 uh, V8, but um, they had made that 5.0 for 30 years before discontinuing it, so it had quite a long run and it was a pretty old engine by the time it was discontinued and so Ford really wanted to celebrate that 4.6 as being revolutionary and high tech compared to that old 5.0. And they even said on the side GT 4.6 they were really proud of that engine. Same engine you could get in the, every cop car of the era right the Crown Vicks the F-150s right they used them in everything those 4.6s. Yeah and those 4.6s if, if you think about the Crown Vicks everybody says that they're so bulletproof and everything and a lot of people forget that they put that in the Mustang as well. So you can get a V8 Mustang and it is super reliable. You could also get in with a limited slipper diff and a fantastic five-speed manual. These are really good cars um, and I think they are aging better than I remember. Uh, I remember when I first saw them as a kid I thought they were just horrendous looking because they're just kind of blobby. But here's a fun cool piece of trivia. Now if you're watching on YouTube you're going to be kind of uh, in for a treat here. So when they were developing the Mustang they had a couple of different concept models and Ford recently released the pictures of the uh, internal concept models and they were designated by three famous celebrities okay so the first celebrity you got to consider this was 1990s um, they, they 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 basically went from least macho to most macho oh my gosh. so let me uh, let me show you show you the first the first concept now this was called I kid you not the Jenner are you ready if I can pull it up here on my screen Ugh. Computer's really struggling today. You know what this first one kind of reminds me of, Tommy? Is it kind of reminds me of the uh, the Mercury Cougar? Yeah. If you remember those. So what we're looking at here is a very smoothed out, very European looking vehicle, right? This is a car that looks like it would belong on the streets of Germany. Now for a while there, do you remember the Probe was actually intended to be the replacement of the Mustang? Yeah. And then also, luckily it wasn't. Worst name for a car ever. I mean, could you imagine? Just saying, hey, you want to come out to the garage and see my probe? <laughs> <laughs> I know, crazy, right? So that was the probe. Uh, or sorry, that was the Jenner. Um, now you got me all confused on probes. <laughs> now let me show you the most macho. This was called the Schwarzenegger. Let me pull up a picture here. So this was the Schwarzenegger. And this is just hideous. No, this was, I'm sorry, I'm all, I'm all over the board. This was the Rambo. Oh, boy. Yeah, okay. this has not gone well. So the Rambo was supposed to be um, completely over the top. It was super, super aggressive. Wait to see the front of it. Are you ready to see the front of it? The front of the Rambo is something else. So it's got like these crazy oh louvers. And it's it's very 1990s like. You know, the front end actually isn't that radically different from the SN95. I mean, it's got those little snarls on the hood scoop there. It's got kind of that lower front fascia looks pretty similar, but the rest of it looks pretty 
odd. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> odd to say the least. So we, yeah. we saw the Jenner. We saw the um, uh, Rambo. Of course, it was Bruce Jenner back then, the Olympian, right? Um, and now I'm going to show you the actual final model. So on the left there, you can see the Rambo. You can see the Jenner. And the middle one was called the Schwarzenegger. So it kind of split the macho-ness difference. And then ultimately, um, you also had the Cobra model, right? So that was the... Uh, the, the extent of the Mustang SN95 kind of design progression, but it's pretty cool to see that sneak behind the curtain, which uh, Ford typically doesn't give you. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And it, I guess if that's the concept car up there on the top right, I mean, the, the Schwarzenegger, it, uh, it really doesn't look very different from the production model. I say they, they did a really good job of taking a concept car and turning it into a production model. Usually yeah, they, you lose a lot of that They basically just, just built it, which is pretty cool. So you could see the Jenner, the Rambo, and the Schwarzenegger, which ultimately became the car that they went with. So that's number nine on our list of affordable, appreciated classics. Dang it. <laughs> Man, my brain's all over today. We're, yeah, we're starting off at number 10, but number nine yes. uh, is the Toyota Celica Supra. Now, a lot of people say, well, what are you talking about? That's two different cars, right? But what a lot of people don't realize is when the Supra first appeared, it was a Celica Supra. So it was based off of the Celica platform, which at the time, which was 1979, was a rear-wheel drive-based vehicle. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Now, this was an interesting vehicle, right? Because everybody remembers the Mark III Supras and then, of course, the Mark IV Supras and all the, the really flashy ones of the 80s and 90s. This one was a little different. So we didn't see the crazy turbocharged engines here in the States, right? We saw a choice of um, inline six-cylinder engines, essentially. Yeah. And so the first gen, I think, is is kind of ugly, to be honest with yep. you. It's not the best looking. Those came out in 79 and had kind of a, only a three-year run as the Celica Supra. Um, but the second gen, which is what we have pictured up here, is, I think, quite a timeless design and very underrated. A lot of people talk about the more recent Supras from like the Fast and the Furious and even the Supras before that. But I actually think, and my personal opinion is that this is the best looking Supra that had ever existed. And the main reason being that really long front end. And that's what differentiated it from the Celica. Because what they did was they extended the wheelbase just in the front. So the rear part of it was the same as the Celica. But the front part of it was added about five inches. So that way they can fit that inline six cylinder engine versus the four-cylinder. I think they are fantastic looking, you're right. Just, they just scream 1980s. Now, uh, second gen came out in 82 with a 2.8 liter inline six-cylinder with just 145 horsepower. So uh, eventually it did get, you know, slight power increases over the years to 160, but it wasn't exactly a screamer, was it? No. I Not mean, by modern standards. Yeah, these these only did zero to 16 about 8.4 seconds and the quarter mile in about 16.1 seconds. And the main reason that they came out with it at the time was to compete with the widely popular Nissan Zs, right? Um, but in reality, they were always quite slower than the Zs, at least the Celica Supras were. Um, but they were also the more budget-friendly option, being $3,000 cheaper. Yeah. Um, and... Well, kind of like the Z, they were more grand tours and like all out sports cars. They weren't super tight or super, you know, um, kind of small and nimble, right? If you wanted that, you would go out and get an RX-7. Um, fun right. story, actually. My dad and my uncle both bought brand new cars in 1983. My dad bought an RX-7 and my uncle bought a Celica Supra. And the oh, RX-7 wow. was sold in about 1987. And my uncle still has a Celica Supra. 
Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Still has where, where, is, where is he located He's at? in Longmont. Yeah. In Longmont? He still has We should do a video with that. I completely yeah. forgot he has that car. We, we may have to go snag that for a video. Those, those are cool cars. Yeah, they are cool cars. Exactly right. And they're becoming a little bit collectible. They're not super valuable yet. You could still get a really good one for ten dollars to $15,000 probably. It's probably about right where they're at in the market. But if you want a very underrated looking car, certainly not much of a huge performer of modern standards, but a car which looks 1980s, screams 1980s, was very reliable, the Celica Supra is a good choice. Yeah, and keep in mind, I mean, you can still find some that are obviously a little bit on the rougher side for $5,000 or mm -hmm. so. Um, but I do know that one recently sold uh, for $24,000 with low miles and, and pristine condition. So if you think about $24,000 being the top of the market for those, if you compare that to the Fast and the Furious type Supras, it is still quite a bargain. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. All right, Brendan, let's move on to the next car on our list, which is one that you have owned, one that you are currently selling actually over at tflbids.com. This is the Volkswagen Passat W8. Yes, and you may have to at some point cut me off, Tommy, because I could wax poetic about the Passat W8 <laughs> for hours. But this car is just such a weird oddball of a car. And the fact that a major auto manufacturer ever even built this is so crazy. So they, at the time, Volkswagen was trying to move upmarket, right? They had recently purchased Bugatti, um, and they were trying to move the Volkswagen brand and all of their brands up market. And they, they had the plans in place where they were coming out with the Phaeton. Mm -hmm. And the problem was, is they have this Passat, which was the, the most expensive car you could get from Volkswagen at the time. And they started around $20,000. And they wanted to sell this Phaeton for starting at $60,000. And there's just a, a huge gap there of people that are not cross-shopping to go into a Volkswagen dealer for a Phaeton and looking at a Passat, right? So they needed something to kind of bridge that gap. And their solution was, let's create a W engine, which was kind of them testing out something new at the time. Like they were testing out W engines for the Bugattis, and they decided to take a W8, which was two of their four-cylinder engines mated together to make a W8, uh, and they put it in the Passat. And the, the whole reason behind creating the W engine is because previously that Passat could only fit a V6 engine in it. Um, but they were able to create an eight-cylinder engine in the size of a six-cylinder engine and be able to put it in that Passat. Yeah, these are really interesting cars. There's yours over at tflbiz.com. Oh, now, um, they are pretty wild. Like, if you want to talk about a sleeper car, a car which looks like a standard, you know, um, run around and then has this massive engine, that's kind of what they had going for them in the early 2000s. Now, production numbers were pretty small because this thing was crazy expensive, right? It was, yeah. So it was a $40,000 Passat. So you could literally buy two of the entry-level Passats for the price of a W8, which it, it seems silly nowadays to talk about it that way it even i mean you're talking could you imagine a camry out there that is twice the price of the base level camry it just would not sell very well now the thing about them too is um it's and it's a different world in germany where um brand has kind of different meaning but here in the states right if you were spending in the equivalent of sixty four thousand dollars in today's money you could have got a hell of an audi right so why would you 
end up with a Passat that looks like your neighbor's Passat who paid half the price, right? Um, I mean, obviously you knew that the engine was special and that it had this crazy four motion system in the manual transmission, which was an option, but nobody else did. And that's a big deal in the States is showing your wealth to other people. Yeah, and I think most people agreed with you, Tommy. That's why only 5,000 of them were ever even sold. And uh, they, they were kind of catered to be a comfy cruiser. Uh, you know, they weren't necessarily a sporty car. They really wanted to make it a luxury type of experience, or at least as luxury as Volkswagen was at the time. Um, and so the vast majority of those 5,000 were ordered with an automatic. Now, if you're able to find one with a manual transmission, which mine does has, as you can see there, uh, it was a six-speed manual, but they only, to the States, imported 424 of those. They are quite rare. It's pretty nuts. And these are cars that I think are going to become collectible because they are super unusual, right? They're definitely an enthusiast choice. And they are from a time in Volkswagen which will never return. The Ferdinand Piek era, when it was okay to have a W12 engine and a Phaeton or a V10 TDI and a, a Touareg, right? Like, just insane decisions. And... So, so cool. Now, horsepower was what, 270? Yep, 270 and I think 273 on the torque. So it wasn't, even for the day, it wasn't a monster, right? It, it was a fairly low-powered eight-cylinder engine, but it was the cheapest eight-cylinder German car that you could buy in the States in, well, mine's a 2003, but they made them for a few years. So in 2003, it was the cheapest eight-cylinder German car. Oh, you got to consider, I mean, it was 20 years ago. 270 was nothing to sneeze at. When we were talking about that's a Mustang true. was making 215, right? <laughs> yeah, that's You know, true. your Volkswagen Passat was making horsepower similar to that of a Mustang. So that was pretty cool about it. Now, that narrow-angle um, V-series, which they, they labeled as W, right? Um, you had them in the VR6s and the W8s and then the W12s and then the W16 and, like, the Veyrons. And it was a really cool era for Volkswagen. It's still around, though. Like, you can get a VR6 engine essentially a VR6 in the new um, Atlas, for example. They still are sticking around. But the crazy thing is the amount of millions of dollars it takes to develop an engine. And then they only put it in one car. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and they... So keep in mind the Passat, you know, a lot of people just think of it as a Camry competitor. But back in this generation, the B5 generation, underneath this was essentially an Audi A4. It shared basically their quattro all-wheel drive system. It wasn't the Halidex where it's front-wheel drive and then it reacts to slippage to send power to the rear-wheel drives. It was in a four-wheel drive vehicle at all times. Um, and so you were really kind of getting a budget Audi at the time. 100%. Yeah, these are really cool. And I don't know if this podcast is going to go up in time, but this car is slash was for sale over at tflbids.com. And speaking of that, we are relaunching it as a place to sell your cool, quirky, affordable, weird, fun, whatever kind of vehicle. And how do po folks um, want to get their car on the, the site if, if they're interested? Yeah, so if they go to tflbids.com, we have a submit your car link right up there highlighted in red at the top. And you can click submit it's a very short form, takes maybe five minutes, send us a few photos. Um, we make it super simple and streamlined, and we promise to get your car listed and sold faster than any other automotive auction site out there. Absolutely right. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um because uh, you're basically dealing directly with us. So we're gonna help you, we're gonna work with you on the pictures. Um, it's a super simple process, it's much less painless. 
um, much more painless, excuse me, than all of the other competitors out there. So check out tflbiz.com and we'll promote your car in the videos on classics and on the other channels as well and try to get you the best sale possible. We just sold an SN95 Mustang, actually our own one for 8,900 bucks, which was a pretty good sale. So uh, if you want yeah. to uh, want to check that out, tflbids.com. Yeah. Yeah. And keep in mind, like Tommy said, you're going to be interacting directly with us. So if, if you submit your car, I personally am going to see it and respond to that email, getting your car listed, and we're going to help build your listing and make it as uh, quick a sale as we can. And then I'll talk about it in the videos. All right, next up on our list, number seven, we have the Mazda Speed Miata. What are we looking at? Yeah, so this was the based on the second generation of the Miata. So it's not the ones that's shooting up in value right now, which is the first gen with the pop-up headlights. Yeah, but those are all expensive now anyways. Exactly. Um, uh, this was only made for two years, and so few people actually realized that they made a Mazda Speed version of that. A lot of people remember the Mazda Speed 3s. A uh, few people remember the Mazda Speed 6s. But the Mazda Speed Miata, I feel like, never gets talked about. And at the time... Uh, it was the only way that you could get a turbocharged Miata, and it was the fastest Miata they had ever made. And it's still, by modern standards, pretty zippy. I mean, the official time quoted is 60 miles an hour in 6.7 seconds and a top speed of 127, which was limited due to the rev limiter. But when you consider that the NV Miata was not known for its straight line performance, right, this little turbo model was really, really impressive. So what are some of the output numbers? Yeah, so this guy put out 178 horsepower, 167 pound-feet of torque, uh, which was basically about a 36 horsepower bump over the, uh, the the naturally aspirated version of them. But that helped propel it 0 to 16 about 6.7 seconds, which for the early 2000s was actually a pretty quick little car. Well, yeah, I mean, even by today's standards, it's pretty quick. And now 36 horsepower doesn't sound like a lot, but we're talking about a little tiny car and the NB Miata, just in general, fantastic value, right? NAs are hugely expensive now. NBs are still pretty affordable. So I definitely consider it NB just in general. And then if you want the ultimate expression of the NB, the Mazda Speed is a fantastic choice. It has a front-mounted air-to-air intercoolers. It had upgraded shocks. It had these special wheels, which were really cool. It had different headlights and also different drivetrain components. Yeah, like they upgraded the clutch. They upgraded the transmission. You know, the shocks were Bilstein shocks, so really good uh, manufacturer on those. And keep in mind, when this thing came out, it was only $827 more than if you were to just get a base Miata with leather. So think about all those performance modifications that you're getting at the time. For $827, it really was a great value, and they pretty much sold out super fast when they were new. Um, and the thing that's interesting is, so they had planned to make 4,000 per year of them for two years. Okay. Um, so they, they did that the first year, which was 2004. But in 2005, they actually had a fire at the factory that shut it down and prevented them from fulfilling that full order. So they only ended up making 1,428 of them wow. for the 2005 model year. Interesting. So there's only about 5,400 of them out on the roads today. It was pretty, pretty wild. And it's also worth noting, too, um, they built like 100,000 of the standard Miatas. So this one is significantly more rare. And when you're looking at collectability, rarity, and, of course, performance upgrades are a big deal. Now, you could go out and build your own, right? So there's companies that will sell you Miata turbo kits, like a company called Flying Miata will do it for you. But I would go with this 100% of the time because it was developed by the Mazda engineers for longevity and durability. So maybe some of the power numbers aren't as impressive as what the Flying Miata systems can do, but you 
got to remember that this car went through the same rigorous reliability cycles that Mazda put every single one of their cars through. Yeah, and and it, if you're looking at me, all right, I know you guys out there, you like to tune your Miatas. That's great. Awesome. Tune Miata, my Miatas are fast and fun. Please don't do it to Mazda Speed Miatas. <laughs> Leave these things original as you can because for what you'd pay for one of these Mazda Speed Miatas, you could just go get a base model of this and get a flying Miata kit and turbocharge it and make it faster than this for a lot less than buying one of these rare birds. Please, for me, keep these as original as you can so that way they can be uh, enjoyed for many, many years to come. Now, what about prices? What have you been seeing online? Uh, so the prices that I was seeing on these is that you can pick one of these up for as little as like 7000 bucks in decent running condition. Now, I'm not talking about projects necessarily. I'm talking car you can go pick up and you can drive home for 7000 bucks. But I have seen uh, some low mileage examples go for as little as 50 or as much as $15,000. So mm -hmm. there is a little bit of a, vari a variation there. But if you're thinking about low production, fun sports cars, even at $15,000 for like a 13,000 mile example, that's still super cheap. I've seen a couple of them touch 20 grand. So they are on the up and up for sure. Definitely buy one now. Um, and it was the only official way to get a turbocharged Miata, unless you went with the Fiat, <laughs> which is a exactly. Fiat 124, which is a whole nother beast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically up until recently when Fiat started uh, selling the Miata with Fiat clothing on it, uh, you couldn't get a turbocharged Miata except for the Mazda Speed. And uh, what's interesting about that is actually the the newer upgraded horsepower on the uh, Miata is faster than the turbo engine. <laughs> the newer naturally aspirated four-cylinder is faster than the turbo engine yeah. in the Fiat. Yeah, the Fiat was a little bit different than the ND Miata, right? They were built alongside each other. Um, the So it was weird. Like, the, the Fiat was built by Mazda but it used a 1.4 Fiat engine with the old Miata transmission. So that was a whole other can of worms. We can do a whole episode around that car, which is really interesting. But let's move on to number six on our list of affordable collectibles bound to increase in value. And we are taking a look at the Chevrolet Blazer ZR2. Yeah, and so a lot of people think of the Blazer name and think of these 60s and 70s big full-size off-road machines, and the Blazer ZR2 was not that. This was based off of the Chevy S10 back in the day, uh, and it was so it was much smaller, much more compact, which actually made it quite a good off-roading machine. Yeah, these things are really, really cool. Now, it was, as you mentioned, based on the little um, S10, right? And you could get the standard Blazer, but the one you really wanted was the ZR2, which only came in the two-door model configuration. It had a wider track. It had this interesting spare tire, different wheels, different suspension, and it was just overall a much cooler vehicle. Yeah, I mean, they gave this thing Bilstein shocks, which raised it up by three inches. It was almost four inches wider than the standard Blazer. So, I mean, we're talking, we're not talking small changes. Like, they changed the actual frame of the machine. This isn't just some Blazer that they lifted up and threw bigger tires on, like some more modern off-roaders like to do, right? Like, they went from the ground up and redesigned this thing to be a purpose-built off-roading machine. It did have some similarities. Like, it had the same engine, right? It had the same general interior, same general design. But you're right. It was super different. It had skid plates. had different 
anti-roll bars, the beefed up wheel and tire package. They had the G80 locking rear diff, which meant they were really good off-road. As we found out, we played, uh, we, we did a cool video with it, um, taking it off-road, and they're really, really capable. They are, and you know, these things are still super, super cheap. I bought mine that I have actually since sold that we did the video for, for a thousand bucks. Wow. I know a lot of people were like, there's no way you can get a ZR2 for under two grand, which is what I was claiming in the video. But I actually bought mine for under a thousand dollars and I sold it for $2,000 after off-roading it. Um, so there are still really good deals out there for these ZR2s. There's a few, I mean, like, Typically, a lot of them are going to be five, six grand out there, right? Like for a nicer one. But you can get them super cheap. And they are just the greatest. They're super good off-road. I think they look cool. They're very 1990s, right? You can get them in funky colors, reds and yellows. And, of course, if you want the generic General Motors gray of the era, you could certainly do that. But uh, I think the look is cool. The two-doorness is cool. The wheels are cool. And... Um, the, the package was first offered on the S10 in 94, the truck, and then carried over to the Blazer starting in 96. So there's also the pickup version if you want a little bit more utility. Yeah, and those tend to fetch a bit more. Um, just because in so? general, the, yeah, the be trucks? in general, trucks tend to fetch a little bit more than SUVs. Um, so that's why we're, we're kind of pitching the ZR2 as the one to get because it is a very similar vehicle to that S10 ZR2. Um, but you can get it for significantly less. So the next car on our list, now moving to something completely different, is the BMW Z3. Now this was the affordable, well, quote, affordable um, roadster that BMW built in the late 90s and early 2000s, but they also built a coupe version called the Z3M Coupe, also known um, within the community as the Clown Shoe, and those have shot up in value. Those are crazy expensive. They're $30,000, $40,000 plus, right? But the standard Z3s are still dirt cheap, and I think they're cars that are going to be on the up and up. Yeah, and keep in mind, this was based off of the E36 3 Series platform, which is also currently shooting up in value. Those E36 M3s are starting to get really valuable because it's kind of hard to find ones that are in still good shape. But this was based on that exact same platform using pretty much the same engines, transmissions, and drivetrains, but they were 300 pounds lighter. So they were faster than all of those E36s. Now, these cars competed with like the Audi TT, and they kind of got a reputation for being um, a little bit of a hairdresser's car. Sure. Right back, <laughs> back in the day, it was like the, they were just very feminine. That's, at least that's like what they appealed to. The, the, like a Miata and a tuxedo is what I've heard it referred yeah, to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I think they've aged incredibly well. They're beautiful looking cars. They are really small compared to a lot of modern day cars. They're super cheap and they can be fairly reliable too, depending on the engine. Now, the thing about Z3s is that they had a huge variety of engine options, uh, ranging from little four cylinders and automatic transmissions all the way up to big straight sixes. And then of course, there was even the Z3 M Roadster, which are kind of the ultimate uh, expression of the Z3. But um, these cars were featured in a James Bond movie, right? Yeah, so they were actually, so they were featured in a James Bond. and. They got a lot of push, James Bond in general got a lot of pushback at the time because this was the first ever BMW uh, featured in a James Bond movie because previously they only did the British cars, right? It was Aston Martin generally that they were doing in the, the Bond movies. And so they got a lot of pushback by not going with Aston Martin and not going with a British car. But uh, a lot of people 
pen the success of the Z3 being based or being in that James Bond movie at the time. Um, And a lot of people don't realize is BMW didn't actually pay to be in that movie. All they did was provide the cars for them to wreck and drive around in the movies. So I think it's kind of an, an, an interesting piece of history um, I mean, nowadays car manufacturers pay a boatload of money to have their cars featured in some of some of the uh, upcoming movies, but uh, back then that wasn't really a thing. Now, well, I think it probably depended on the movie. I'm sure, I'm sure at some point BMW paid them because they're not <laughs> going to do it for free. James Bond was a was a big series, but um, yeah, they're handsome cars, and they are. Um, I think a car which has aged exceptionally well. Like the Z8s now are 150, 250000 The Z3s, though, you can get like a 1.9 automatic for like four grand, right? 4500 Yeah. And then if you go up to some of the M cars, you might be spending fifteen twenty. But what are some of the other engine options? Yeah, so, I mean, keep in mind that this Z3 actually kind of spanned the E36 series engines and the E46 series engines, which is why you have so many different variations, right? So the 1.9 put out 138 horsepower, and that was kind of the early entry-level model. Um, and you had the 2.3, which was in a little bit later version, which was actually American uh, American engine only. Oh, okay. And that put out 170 horsepower. The 2.5 liter put out 184 horsepower. You had the 2.8 liter put out 190 horsepower. And I think actually the one to look for that's going to be the best value is the 3 liter. Okay. It's kind of the later version of the Z3. They put out 228 horsepower. So in a small car like that, it's still pretty potent. If you think about it, that's that's maybe what, um, 12 horsepower off of the original M Roadster? Pretty you good. get it for a lot less. Pretty good. Now, of course, the M Roadsters um, in the U.S. We kind of got the wet noodle version. We had the <laughs> we had like the the detuned model. The European ones had more yeah. horsepower, so we got 240 horsepower at first here in the U.S. But I think that would ideally be the one I would get for, or I would just go for like the cheapest manual four cylinder. Get it for 5K, enjoy it for a summer, and then sell it because that's what these cars are great at, right? They're good at just being awesome cruisers. Fairly reliable overall. I mean, it is a late 90s BMW, so you can expect some issues. But fairly cheap to get parts for, and you can get them in cool colors. Yeah, great, great little cars. Yeah, absolutely. And and keep in mind, a lot of people love those those clown shoes, the uh, the M clown shoes. Oh, yeah. But they don't realize that the actual rarest one of them is if you get the clown shoe, which is the coupe, with the 3 liter, not the M. Because really? they only made about 3,800 of those. Wow. But any coupe is going to be pretty pricey, so I'd yeah. be I'd kind of stick away from the coupes. I have a friend that has one of these, by the way, a Z3M Roadster. He loves it. It's a great car. All right, so we're going to take a break from our list and talk about classic cars that we simply just don't understand. So these are vehicles that are popular in the community right now, but just aren't really our thing. Yep, and uh, I'm going to start off with one that I may get a lot of hate for, and in fact, Tommy, you may hate me for this. Uh-huh, but let's hear it. 80s Mercedes diesels. I just don't understand them. They are so slow. <laughs> I don't think they're that fantastic looking. They look very basic, very plain Jane. They're somewhat comfortable, but there are more comfortable cars out there, and as far they're not that engaging to drive. Yes, I get they're super reliable, but so is a Toyota Camry. And you don't see enthusiasts waxing poetic about Toyota Camrys. So what Brendan is talking about is recently there has been a huge uptick in the popularity of the Mercedes sedans throughout the 60s. And, well, not the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. 
particularly. And in the States, actually, they came mostly in diesel variants. So the 240D, the 300D, the 300D turbo diesel. And I think this is probably the one you're talking about primarily, which is the W123. Came out in the late 70s, sold through the mid-1980s. They sold a bajillion of them. And yes, especially the wagons now, on certain auction sites, they're selling for forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars for a good wagon. That is nuts. And even the sedans are going for 15, 20 in really good shape. Now, the reason I love these cars and I think enthusiasts love these cars is because they they stem from a different time of Mercedes-Benz. They came from a time where style wasn't as important, interior features weren't as important, tech wasn't important. What was important is utmost longevity and durability. So these cars were designed to go 250, 300, 400,000 miles, kind of like a Camry, but unlike a Camry, I think they look pretty cool. They are just the pinnacle of the boxiness design, rear wheel drive. Um, now, they, I, I do see what you're coming from. They are redonkulously slow. Like a 240D at altitude, like we're here at elevation in Colorado, 0 to 60, 15, 20 seconds, right? Well, not only that, we recently drove one where the automatic transmission was pretty darn harsh. And I was quite surprised at the time. <laughs> I'm like in the backseat going, oh, man, holy cow, what is this? It almost shifted like a smart 4.2, and uh, you were just like, yeah, that's pretty common with these. I'm like, why would you want to live with that? Well, the thing about these cars, so the OM engines, which is what Mercedes called them, oil motor, right? They were, um, um, they were, they will last to the end of time, right? But the transmissions were vacuum controlled. Issue with these cars is everything is vacuum controlled on them. Door locks are vacuum controlled. Transmission shift points are vacuum controlled. Even the key to shut the car off runs off vacuum. So you'll often see these with a perfectly fine engine, but everything will be broken because they are cars that were purchased new by people that had a lot of money and then passed down to people that had less money and then passed down by, to college kids, right? And ultimately, they just became clapped out. And typically, any other car would get thrown away and moved off to the, to, to, to the, the junkyard, right? It's a car that has no, no value to it. Sure. But the thing is, an old Mercedes diesel, the engines and the powertrains will keep going and going and going. Right. So there's no reason to get rid of it, even if nothing works. So you can see a lot of these that are really clapped out. Now, I understand why you wouldn't um, like these. I don't appreciate why you don't like them, because <laughs> I think they're amazing. Um, I've had um, one of them. I have another one right now. And I just, they're, they're like, it's like driving around in a bank vault, you know? <laughs> it's like the appreciation of something so, so solid in, in its construction. But you're right. Like, they are not a lot of fun to drive. Yeah, I mean, I can get it. it I could get behind, uh, what do they call those? The the four the four twenty SELs, like the 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 basically the early the S Mercedes classes? S classes, like the W one twenty six. I could totally get that because who doesn't love a nice comfy cruiser that you can take on long road trips and enjoy, and not have your back or your butt sore when you get there. But these ones, they're. I just, I don't know. They're, so, they're, they just don't speak to me, Tommy. I, I don't know if you could even sway me a little bit. So you like these guys? <laughs> I do. I And I get those. Like, it's the same I know car. they're not as reliable. <laughs> I know they're just as ugly, but they're a little bit longer. They have a little bit more performance to them. They have a little better exhaust note, a little more engine tone to them, a little more engaging to drive. So here's the issue, though. Mercedes, especially old Mercedes, have a reliability in the modern era of unreliability. Right. Yeah. Oh, sorry, they have a reputation. Yeah, reputation for, for being unreliable. unreliability. Yes. Right. And that was what made the diesels Mercedes so enticing is that they just work, 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 and work. Whereas when you start going to some of the fuel-injected gas stuff, right, some of that 
dips a little bit. Not to say the W126 gas, like the 420s, are unreliable, because that's just a flat-out lie. Like, they will also last an insanely long time. Now, I would pitch to you, get one of these, which I also love. They're fantastic. They're huge and they're comfy in their boats, but with the diesel engine. And then okay. your interest wanes again. You're like, oh, well, we got to go back. <laughs> the other thing about the diesel engines, which people don't understand, is like modern diesels are smooth and quiet and like very refined. 80s diesels are like, glug, 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 glug. I mean, they are like tractors. So yeah, they, are they, not they literally quiet. sound like an industrial type yes. of engine. Like it doesn't belong Sounds like a to me in a, in a commuter vehicle. I, I, I understand yeah. that. <laughs> now, the kind of cars I just don't understand, I just don't like them. 1990s Japanese performance cars. What? They just don't do anything for me. Oh I just, like, the is whole... It, is it just the price that they're fetching right now? All or is it, it the... the... The tuning community. I mean, these were cars, I think, largely made popular, right, by, like, the Fast and Furious movie. So I'm talking about, like, the Supras. Okay. Right? The RX-7s um, of the world. Oh, my God. You Wait. The RX-7. You don't like the 90s yeah, RX-7? Yeah, like the FD RX-7s. Oh, my gosh. That is such a timeless design. I just, I do. They're so beautiful. Yeah, Mark IV Supras. And the issue is every Mark IV Supra looks the same. They all have the same multi-spoke wheels on them with the huge coffee can exhaust and 8,000 horsepower. I just, like, do something new and creative. It's all the same. And the, like, I don't know, dude. They just are, ah. I just don't get them, you know? Well, and that's why, I mean, I'm I'm a little more towards the original. Like, I want a car in the original form that the maker intended it to be. I I don't want to buy somebody's tuned out machine that's pushing a thousand horsepower or whatever, because if I want to do that, I want to do it myself. I don't want somebody else's uh, tuning that they've done to it, because I don't know how well it was done. I don't know if it was done in somebody's barn or if it was done by a reputable tuner. But <laughs> if you get like one of those, R, those 90s RX-7s uh, in original form, it is just such a cool car. It's got a unique Wankel rotary engine to it that puts out a sound unlike anything else. And I think, honestly, is, in my opinion, one of the top 10 most beautiful cars ever made. Here's the other thing, too. You just know, say you spend $75,000 or $80,000 on the perfect bone stock Mark IV Supra or the perfect bone stock RX-7 FD, right? You know, twin turbos. These cars are built up in people's heads as being such high-performance machines. And then you go and drive one, 238 horsepower, 25 years later. It's not going to feel very fast. And then you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be like, oh, the hero. (laughs) It's not that fast. When you talk about price on some of those Mark IV Supras, yes, yes, I can totally agree with you. Uh, When you could go out and get one of those for $10,000, $15,000, buy it. All day, it is totally a, a super engaging, fun to drive car for ten to fifteen thousand dollars. For seventy five thousand dollars, you all are out of your mind. Well, I'm just looking at one right here, recently sold in August '94 Toyota Supra, six speed ma- manual transmission, fifty five thousand miles, one hundred and thirty three thousand dollars. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, I don't get I, it. I don't. I can totally agree with you there. One hundred and thirty six thousand dollars. You could get so many other cars for that kind of price. It just doesn't make sense to me to to buy. A Supra that's just going to disappoint you but because money, it won't perform for $136,000. Money, no option. Would you still get one? If, so, if, you won the, the, if you won the Powerball tomorrow, would you be going in line for a bone stock RX-7 or Supra? RX-7? Yeah. Yes. Well, that is one of my... The if RX-7. I had a 10-car garage, that is one of my cars that would be in the garage. The, the turbo 
RX-7 in bone stock form. You know you wouldn't fit. That's the other issue, too, is they're too small on the inside. <laughs> yeah. They're teeny. Anyways, that's 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 the car group of cars I understand. And then the one that both of us don't really understand, anything 30s and 40s. They're not really having their, their moment in the sun right now, but I honestly, like, you show me a picture of a 1940s car, and unless it's a Packard, I'd have no idea what it was. Yeah, uh, it's, they all kind of... They just don't resonate. They don't They don't resonate. I mean, I get the, t- the design of them. Some of them look pretty cool. They're interesting, but... They're just not great to drive. They're they're dangerous. They're, yeah, they're, they're dangerous. Slow. They're unreliable. Finding someone to work on them at this point <laughs> is going to be near impossible, and it's just yeah. I don't get. I it. think we're on the same page on that one. Yeah. So guys, let us know in the comments. Are we insane? Are we off our rocker? Um, do you agree with us? We'd love to hear your feedback. But now back to the list of affordable cars, which are great modern day collectibles. Number four, we're talking a car that probably people are going to tune out for, but the first generation of the BMW era minis. Yeah. So these are the R50, R53, or if you got the convertible R52 uh, generation of minis and. I tend to think, and and now I have actually driven your classic Mini, Tommy. Yeah. Um, which was only recent to me. I had never driven a, an original classic Mini before. And now I've pretty much driven all the generations of Mini. And I'm going to make a bold statement here. I think the R50 generation of Minis is the best one to get. Yeah, believe it or not, the recreation of the original is better than the original. I have to agree with you because the classic Mini is a ton of fun and it is an amazing piece of history and you feel like you're driving the 1960s in Britain, but they're just so small and they're just so compact and they're just so slow, let's be honest, by modern day standards that they're not a ton of fun, whereas the R53 Mini is bigger by a large margin, but these things are still positively tiny by modern day standards. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was way smaller than the Volkswagen Golf at the time. I, I don't remember the exact dimensions of how much smaller it was, but I remember it was significantly smaller. And plus, you could get it with a supercharged four-cylinder engine. And there just, there really aren't many other supercharged four-cylinder engines that you could think of out there. I know, I know there's a few, but this is kind of a rare bird in having that supercharged engine, so it provided torque pretty early on in the rev range. And they also sound incredible. You get this little supercharger just screaming away through a six-speed manual transmission. To put it in perspective, this car is a full 25 inches shorter than a new Volkswagen Golf. Oh, there you go. So two feet shorter than a Golf, which is already a small car. Um, The interiors are so funky and cool. They still have the center-mounted speedometer, right? But BMW really worked hard on the performance of these cars. Even if you get the cheapest bone stock r50 with the manual transmission they are a ton of fun and it's one of these cars where your muscle cars guys are scoffing just go drive a supercharged mini from the early 2000s and you will be sold not really all that reliable compared to some so i've owned two of them now and the main issue i've had believe it or not is power steering pumps because it was it was inherently a bad design they left the fan that cools the power steering pump exposed to the underside of the car and so any little rock or pebble can get in there stop that fan from working and then it overheats blows your power steering pump and you're out 800 bucks mine have had issues they had used a plastic slave cylinder on the um, clutch system which was kind of a bad design too um they also need supercharger services every hundred thousand miles but you can do reduction kits on the pulley you can do exhaust systems and suspension and you can really tune these cars up exactly how you want but believe it or not the minis are known for being super cheap. Some of the nice ones are creeping up in value. They are, uh, but you can still jump, if you jump in now, you can still get these for a really good value. In fact, I just recently bought one 
uh, with only 59,000 miles on it, and it's the convertible version. It's a fairly low option one. It didn't have a ton of options on it, but uh, I bought mine for less than $6,000. Yeah. Um, and for for 6000 bucks, getting something with that low of miles and that much fun, you, it's really hard to beat that bang for buck. I agree completely. Yeah, I mean, if you want a JCW, right, you're probably going to be looking more like 8 to 10, maybe to 12. Yeah. If you want a GP, geez, you're going to be looking at 25, 30 plus. Yes. Um, but uh, I would definitely stick to these first gens. It's easy to get confused with the second gens, which went to turbocharging. Stick right. to the first gens, which were like 01, 02 through 06 in the coupes. And then two, I think two extra years on the convertibles. Up so through 08, 08. Yep, on the yeah. convertibles. And um, try to get just like the most original one with the lowest mileage you can. And I think you'll love it a lot because these are a ton, buckets of fun. Yeah, and if you think if you think about values, if you think about this as you know an investment, um, the E46 M3 right got super valuable, and what that did to the base model type of E46 3 series is those started to creep up in value because people could no longer afford the M3, mm-hmm. and so that's happening now with the GP. The GP has gotten to the point to where normies like us cannot afford to spend thirty thousand dollars on a Mini Cooper, so we're not going to go buy that GP. We're going to go buy an S or a JCW, and those can still be had for a reasonable amount of money, but I think are on the bottom of their value, so they're going to go up. Yeah. Now is the time to get them 1,000%. Don't get an automatic, and especially don't get an automatic non-Cooper S because you'll have a CVT, which is garbage. Um, By the way, if you ever want an excuse to want one of these, go watch the Italian Job remake. Oh, yeah. With Tom Cruise in like <laughs> 02, 03. Yep. What a great movie, by the way. And these are featured prominently. And what I love about them is that they actually used real engine sounds from these cars. So you get to hear that really? burr of the, uh, yeah. But did you know those cars were actually electric? Because no, they were I didn't filming know that. inside, yeah. So for the production, they built three electric ones. Because oh, they were inside and then dubbed over the sound of the actual Cooper S. First ever electric Mini. I know. I was just talking <laughs> to one of my Mini folks. And then they crushed it, believe it or not. Oh, what a shame. Yeah, they got rid of them. Anyways, now on to something completely different a vehicle, which is a little bit off the beaten radar, but this is a Grand Cherokee, but not just any Grand Cherokee. Yeah, so this is the first gen Grand Cherokee. Near the end of the, well, actually at the end of their production run of the first gen, and I believe this was before they got bought out by Mercedes, so this was still just uh, Jeep being Jeep, they decided, or I'm sorry, Chrysler being Chrysler, they decided to take the 5.9 liter engine from the Dodge Ram, right, like a, a truck engine with a lot of torque, and shove it in the Grand Cherokee, creating the Jeep Grand Cherokee 5.9 Limited. Now they sold a ton of Grand Cherokees uh, in two, or in 1998. Yeah. But only 15,000 of them ever came with that 5.9. So if you think about it in terms of rarity, only five percent of the ones made in 1998 have this 5.9 Limited engine in it. So it is quite a rare bird as far as Jeeps go. These are super weird. Now, this was arguably the first performance SUV. It was the first time that an OEM decided to cram a huge engine into a vehicle designed primarily for off-roading for the sake of making it fast and special, right? Yeah, so some people will say that the uh, the GMC yeah, Cyclone, Cyclone that's a good point. would be the first performance SUV, but keep in mind that had two doors. Right, and this had four doors. This has four, and that had an engine that was just a six-cylinder engine, right? A six-cylinder turbocharged engine that was like specifically made for that type of car. This is a 5.9-liter engine that you could find 
in any of those Rams back then. I think even they put it in the Durango back then. So it was a pretty common engine, and it was a pretty usable vehicle compared to the GMC. Yeah, let me clarify that. The first family-oriented performance SUV. Yes. Because, like, now you've got – I mean, they're everywhere. You've got, of course, some modern-day Grand Cherokees, SRTs, and the Trackhawks, but you also have, like, the X5M from BMW and the Mercedes-AMG SUVs, right? And they're hugely popular. But this was an early example. Now, one of the weird things about these is they're very difficult to tell – a run-of-the-mill, bajillion-made straight six from the Super Rare 5.9. Yeah, but there are a few key differences. First one being those five-spoke wheels on there were specific to uh, the 5.9. And then if you look up on the top of the hood, it had these louvers on the side that were actually functional to let heat escape. I mean, I don't know how functional they were, but they were actually functional. Now, the downside of those louvers is they were made of plastic, uh, so the paint on those usually fails. So don't let that deter you when buying one of those because it's easy to renew, remove those louvers and repaint them and stick them back on there to get it looking good again. Um, and then another tell is if you look out back, it had this larger chromed exhaust tip, right. which actually sounded quite nice. Now, the thing about these 5.9 Grand Cherokees is that they are still super cheap. The first generation of the Grand Cherokee called the ZJ. You can get them a really good one for like five, six grand, right? A pretty bad one for three. Uh, Best one in the world, probably going to run you eight, right? So they're still very affordable. And I think that these are cars, the the first gen Grand Cherokee in general is on the up and up because we talked about how like the halo cars are increasing value. The XJ Cherokees, the really square Cherokees from the 80s and the 90s blew up in value. Now like a good one's going to be 15 grand. Exactly. Um, And they're dragging up the prices of the ZJ Grand Cherokees as well. And the ultimate ZJ Grand Cherokee is a 5.9. Yeah. So I think this is going to be of the Grand Cherokees. This is the rarest. And this is going to be the, I think, the first one to start shooting up in value. So, I mean, as far as if you've got less than 5K to invest in a collector car, it's gonna, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a better return on investment than one of these because they are really on the cusp of shooting up in value because off-roaders are super hot right now, and a lot of the capable off-roaders are shooting up in value, and Jeeps specifically are shooting up in value. But for whatever reason, it's only just started on the Grand Cherokees. 100%. Absolutely. So that's a great choice. I really think that should deserve to be on the list. But moving on to number two, we have the Toyota MR2. Yeah, and uh, I know, Tommy, you don't like the 90s, so... The 90s Japanese sports cars. So we went a little bit earlier because the 90s MR2 is, well, everybody's caught on. They're super valuable. So I'm specifically talking about the first gen Toyota MR2, which was this wedged, like squared off, boxy looking, tiny little car where Toyota decided to put the engine behind the driver's seats and give it rear-wheel drive. So it was kind of like Toyota's version of the Pontiac Fiero at the time, but uh, not a, it, it, not as flammable. Yeah, and also <laughs> would actually work. Now, yeah. <laughs> there were a couple different versions of this car, too. They also made both NA and supercharged models. We'll talk about them in a second. They built these from 84 through 89, and the suspension and handling were designed in partnership with Lotus. Yeah, so these were actually fantastic handling little vehicles uh, because of that partnership with Lotus. Now, they they weren't super fast, right? The first ones to come out in 1984 
only had about 112 horsepower. Um, that's here in the U.S. Other markets actually received more powerful ones. Uh, you could get them up to 128 horsepower. Um, but when they did start offering that supercharged engine, you could get them in 145 horsepower, which again doesn't sound like much, but keep in mind this is a tiny little car, and they were doing zero to 60 in six and a half seconds. And this is back in 1988. Yeah. Pretty impressive. And then um, the supercharged models were more rare, and I think they're cooler. I, oh, I yeah. would definitely recommend getting a supercharged one. Now, what are the values going on these guys? So the supercharged ones, I think the general public agrees with you because one recently sold for $50,000. Now, keep in mind, this is like, a, I think it was a vehicle with like less than 10,000 miles on it and in pretty much showroom new condition. But you can still find nice, Driver's examples of these in the NA version for less than 5,000 bucks. If you want to get the supercharged one, I think you're probably going to spend closer to 10 with something with, you know, normal miles on it uh, and with general wear and tear on it. So I think it's still pretty good value. Yeah, fantastic. I agree completely. All right, now let's talk about cars that have shot up in value definitively, no longer on our list because they are very, very expensive. And we're going to start out with, once again, a car I just don't understand, never was into them, but the Acura Integra Type R. Yeah, these things, um, you know, back in 2018, you could pick one of these up for ten dollars to $15,000. And for ten dollars to $15,000, I can somewhat understand it. They weren't, they weren't super fast. They were surprisingly quick is what they were. A lot of people expected... Surprisingly quick. Yeah, people expected them to be slow when they got in. And then when they hit the gas pedal and floored it, they were like, oh, hey, it's actually got a little bit of kick, you know, kick to it. But you, know, you get it up against some of the bigger ones like the Supras, the RX-7s. They're not as fast as that. No. Um, but one, one recently sold for, and I kid you not... $112,000, and that person is out of their mind for spending $112,000 on an Acura Integra Type R. And now even projects, cars that don't run, are selling for close to $20,000. Yeah, I mean, I understand the whole VTEC appeal and, like, the once again, the Fast and Furious community. I just don't understand them. Now, a car I do understand is the Jeep Cherokee, the XJ Cherokee, right? The little square ones. We mentioned it earlier in the show. You used to be able to get a really good one for like four grand. Now, decent ones are going to be 10 grand. And what is kind of the high watermark? Yeah, so uh, I was surprised to see this actually. One recently sold again, super low mileage, really perfect condition for $42,000. That thing wasn't worth that back in the day. No, you could go out and get a new jeep for forty two thousand dollars but someone decided they wanted that basically showroom ready condition version of it for forty two thousand dollars and i think that's kind of an indicator of where these are going so i think wow. you know ten thousand dollars may seem like a lot to us right now but i think they even have more room to look go. at that five thousand mile oh one cherokee last year the cherokee forty two thousand dollars imagine that buying that car in oh one parking in the garage i'm looking at a base model steel wheel cherokee I bet this thing doesn't even have a tack. It does not even have a tachometer in it. It's that base model. Sold for $22,000 a month ago. Just absolutely not so money on these cars. They're great cars. I love them dearly. I would never pay this kind of money for them. Because no. for a while there, they were like disposable. You'd buy them until it broke. You'd throw it away, and then you'd get another one. And again, you could just go grab a Grand Cherokee for one-fifth the money. 
of what you'd go spend on yes, an equal a, Cherokee. And it was a better car in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, it was the upgraded version of the Cherokee. It still had that legendary four-liter engine, but you had a better interior and more comforts. It was just a more usable vehicle. If only they made them a little bit more square, we'd be sitting on a gold mine with our crappy Grand Cherokee. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is pretty funny. And then the last car on our list are the 80 Series Land Cruisers. Yeah, and I know everybody loves Land Cruisers, and I get it. I, I actually enjoy the Land Cruisers as well, but specifically the 80 Series Land Cruisers, which, you know, back in 2018, you could pick one up there, good-looking vehicle, for around $7,000 for a, an average example one. But now, nice examples are fetching on average like $25,000, yeah. and one recently sold, or I kid you not, $135,000. For an 80 series? For an 80 series Toyota Land Cruiser. Unreal. Now these, of course, um, they had the FJ80 and then the FZJ80, which had the better engine. And they are as long-lived as my old Mercedes, but they would also go off-road. And they're just phenomenal vehicles. Ain't no way I'm spending over twenty grand for one, though, because I just can't justify it, you know? And they're always really high mileage because people drove the wheels off of them. So they're typically 150, 200, 250, 300,000 miles when you find them, and they're just too expensive. Yeah, and, and you can get a 100-series Land Cruiser for probably half the price. Although those are creeping up, too. I just saw one that sold oh, really? um, last week for $43,000. Oh, my gosh. So the market's changing on those, too. And then we got the last car on the list, the four-tours HHO introduced in 1989, and they had a pretty cool engine. Yeah, so these had the 3-liter V6, uh, which was actually built and developed by Yamaha back in the day. And uh, Ford was just kind of fulfilling an agreement that they had made with Yamaha. Um, but the cool thing about those engines are – you know, people love the 5.0 Mustangs back in the, the 80s and early 90s, right? Mm -hmm. Those only made five horsepower more than the three-liter V6 that they put in the Taurus SHO. Yeah. Now, you could get the square one or the really ugly round one, um, but they are just ultimate sleepers. Um, they were 0 to 60 in, like, the mid-six-second range, which was really impressive. Yeah, they were super fast for a front-wheel drive sedan back in the day, putting out 220 horsepower with a five-speed manual, and that manual transmission was actually a Mazda manual transmission. So you're getting a Yamaha engine, a Mazda transmission, and then a Ford Comfy interior. It's kind of a good combination, I think, if and, you think about it. And Conan O'Brien owns one. <laughs> yep. Apparently. Yeah, He well, he bought one new and still owns it to this day, and it's actually been featured on his TV show a few times. If that's not a reason to own one, I don't know what is. Well, guys, let us know what you think of our list of affordable classics bound to appreciate. As always, this has been Tommy. And Brendan. We'll see you on the next episode. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support, the new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Super Beats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL.
That's radio, B-E-E-T-S dot com, code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.